Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, as always, Carrie Parker, and we've got a really fun show for you today. If last couple shows were a little bit heavy, a little bit deep, a little bit thought-provoking, uh, this week we had some fun. Uh, bring back friend of the show, Chris Romeo. He and I are going to discuss all the goings-on at the big hacker conferences uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, one was called DEF CON, and the other one's called Black Hat. And uh, we've got some great fun, interesting stories. And and beyond the stories themselves, we really kind of take the time to get into the hacker's brain. What does it really mean to be a hacker? And I think you're going to be surprised. Most people think of that as uh, hackers as all bad guys, the little guys with the hoodies, you know, hovered over that dark computer doing nefarious things. It's really much more complicated than that and much, much more interesting. So uh, we talk about that. I'll talk with Chris Romeo in just a minute. We get into some great stories about that. It was really a lot of fun talking to Chris about this and uh, hope you enjoy it too. Uh, real quick though we got just a little bit of time we basically spend all the time this week talking about uh, news but i got a couple quick tips for you before we get started one of them is uh there's been a rare out of band uh microsoft office patch and by out of band i mean that they usually release their software patches once a month um, on tuesdays uh, but this one is out of band. It means it was off that schedule, which probably means it's pretty important. So if you run Microsoft Office, I highly recommend you go and download the latest updates from them right away. And one more quick little bit of news. You may have seen in the news that HBO is being held for ransom. Some hackers got into their system, downloaded apparently about 1.5 terabytes worth of data. And if you're not familiar with that, it, a terabyte is a thousand gigabytes. So that that's a lot of data. And so apparently they got a bunch of emails, they got some Game of Thrones scripts, and they apparently are claiming that they even have some Game of Thrones episodes, and they're threatening to release those episodes unless HBO pays them a multi-million dollar ransom in the next few days. Just goes to show you that hacking is hacking for profit in particular is just becoming more and more prevalent, unfortunately. We've really got to make sure we keep our systems up to date. We've got to be vigilant about what we click on, what we open. It's really down to every one of us, and all they got to do is find the weakest link to find that one person in the company who's going to open that wrong attachment and infect their computer and let the bad guys in. So we'll see what HBO does about it. We'll see if they can figure out who did it and uh, track them down before anything really bad gets released, but it's not looking good. And uh, it's going to be even harder not to get those Game of Thrones spoilers. <laughs> so, all right. Anyway, just, that's all I really have time for this week. We've got to get into it. There's a, we're going to talk about a lot of news uh, in my segment with Chris. Uh, some, of that, some of this is information that you definitely need to know, and some of it's just really fun. So check this out. I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. All right, and we are back with Chris Romeo, a friend of the show, who's uh, founder and CEO of Security Journey. Welcome back. Thanks, Kerry. Glad to be back here to talk about all things security. Yeah, and as I told the audience a couple weeks ago, that we were, I was going to give them the big readout on DEF CON and Black Hat, and then you, you and I got to talking, and, and I think I uh, decided we we're going to do this show on the, the whole topic. Just you and I, we'll just chat about it, and I'll, I'll pick your brain a little bit, and uh, we'll go through all the, the big news items from there. And the big thing, of course, I told everybody prior to this was get your stuff updated because, because you know, all the, all, the, all the stuff that they announced should have been fixed before there, but if you're not up, up to date, then you're, gonna, you're, you're still vulnerable. Yeah, that's always good advice to uh, patch early, patch often, and regardless of what security conferences are happening around the world. Yep. So DEF CON and Black Hat, these are two of the arguably, arguably largest 
uh, hacker conferences or cybersecurity conferences, depending on your point of view uh, in the world. Uh, they've been going for quite a while. Um, Def, the, the, what's the difference between DEF CON and Black Hat? They're always held, as far as I can tell, at the same time in, uh, in Vegas. Why are they different? Yeah, yeah. So DEF CON is the original conference. So DEF CON just hit its 25th year, if you can imagine, wow. of groups groups of hackers and security people gathering in Las Vegas to talk. And it actually started like in a single hotel suite. 25 years ago, it was uh, Jeff Moss and, you know, his some of his friends got together and said, hey, let's go hang out in Vegas and we'll hack some stuff over there. <laughs> and the next year they brought more people, they, they invited more friends. And then within a couple of years, it had turned into an actual official conference event. And so Black Hat is the commercial version of DEF CON that evolved maybe 10 or so years, I don't remember exactly, but 10 or so years after after they had created the DEF CON kind of idea where the hackers were all coming together and it was kind of a wild big party with a lot of hacking and some talks and things. And now Black Hat kind of commercialized, they, they commercialized a lot of those principles and said, okay, let's have a couple of days that are in front of DEF CON where the business people can come, the security people can come. And so Black Hat has really grown into being very similar, like you said, to some of the other big commercial conferences. Gotcha. So obviously the purpose is usually just to disseminate information. And it sounds like, you know, they, they have slightly different purposes, but, uh, you know, why would one, you know, obviously if you're in the business, you would go, but is there any reason why somebody off the street, if they're just interested maybe in cybersecurity or, you know, why might you duck into one of these conferences? What would you see? So at these conferences, you're going to see lots of different cutting-edge research in the field of security. Uh, people are going to be trying to hack all kinds of different devices. And a big part of both of these conferences is these researchers are coming and they're presenting their findings to the community and ultimately to the rest of the world. Now, if you're coming to Black Hat, there's going to be like a vendor area. There's going to be – it's a lot – like I said, it's a lot more commercial. So there's going to be a lot more people trying to sell you things at Black yeah, Hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, you know, there, there, there's a lot of similarities between them. Uh, DEF CON tends to be more wild and crazy than Black Hat is these days, but they've both, I guess, become a lot more tame over the years as things have, uh, continued. Sure. And, uh, you know, so there's, I don't know how much people realize what the, you know, the real industry behind hacking and, and cybersecurity, but there's. There are conferences. It's legit in that sense that there's there's all these things that people go to on, a, on an annual basis. But there, there's also the hackathons. There's uh, the bug bounties are another big one. So these guys are actually paid in a lot of cases, sometimes after the fact. Uh, but if they can find bugs in software and, and they can prove to the owner of that software that they found a hole that wasn't known before, they get paid, right? Yeah, that's a whole there's a whole cottage industry now of this idea of bug bounties where a company will say, we want to encourage people to try and find problems in our products. And so if you find a problem, a security problem, we'll pay you anywhere from $100 to $100,000. I mean, one of the one of the big ones, I know uh, a guy in, in technology that participates in these uh, bug bounties. He's actually found two bugs in United, the, the airline, oh in my. their software systems. They pay a million miles for each bug. Oh, wow. So he's actually got two, he has 2 million miles of frequent flyer miles that he can use <laughs> to get tickets and stuff all because he found SQL injection, which are some of the most common vulnerabilities that are out there in United's 
web pages. So that's that's how you know bug bounties are everywhere. And and to to drop back into the Vegas conference scene of DefCon and, and Black Hat, a, a lot of the research that's going on here is going to be coordinated with those vendors. So there may be some type of bug bounty happening there. Um, but the communication between the people that are attacking this stuff and the vendors is such an important part of, of what everybody's doing. It really has become its own economy. That's I, I, I'm bringing it up because I don't th- I don't think a lot of people are aware uh, this is going on. But it, it's it's almost it in some ways it's perverted things as well because people the researchers who find these bugs that will often sit on them because and, and instead of reporting them because they want to wait for the bug bounty so they can cash in. Yeah, yeah, and there's and there's you know there's a, a a whole other dimension to the idea of vulnerabilities that are found in products. So all we're talking about now is what we call kind of the above the grade or above the conversation type of of research and reporting. There's a whole underground world where what we call zero day vulnerabilities, meaning it's a vulnerability that nobody else knows about. So it's brand new and it's almost guaranteed to allow you to hack into something. There's a whole cottage industry of people, uh, nation states, individuals, people that are just generally finding these vulnerabilities, these kind of attacker people. They're selling these zero-day exploits back and forth between different large companies. And so there's the bug bounty side, but then there's also this underground world, which is actually a really bad thing for our overall industry. Yeah, and the other thing I think that I find interesting when I look at these bug bounty programs, um, the official ones, is you can kind of you can kind of tell either a how important a company thinks something is, or b how vulnerable a comp- uh, the company thinks it is by what they charge for a bounty. Uh, I know that some of the some of the low level Microsoft stuff, you know, it might be a few, a few thousand bucks. Where when you start to look like an iPhone, which has kind of traditionally been one of the more secure. Uh, devices out there, yeah. some some of the bounties for those, I, I believe, get up you know upwards of a half million dollars. Yeah, yeah, they definitely do. And and uh, Microsoft's been a big proponent of the whole bug bounty thing. Katie Mazuris, uh, who has her own company now, Luda Security, but she used to be at Microsoft, and she was really the the per, the, the person that was behind kind of sculpting Microsoft's approach to bug bounties. But yeah, a lot of big companies are doing that now where they're they're uh, bringing this bug bounty idea into their overall approach to vulnerability research. Yep. And again, so we're going to start walking through some of the things that came out of this year's uh, conferences in just a second. But the key thing to note is, in most cases, if, if you're doing this ethically, the way this whole process is supposed to work as a hacker or, or security researcher, however you prefer to call yourself, you find these things, you approach the, the company that has the problem, you tell them what it is privately, give them enough time to fix it, and then they go fix it. And then by the time you announce it, they've already released the fixes for it. So, you know, as long as you're up to date, you're safe. Now, I know there have been cases uh, in Google even, which is so odd. Google's got such a weird relationship with this stuff because <laughs> on one hand, they've got Project Zero, which is doing some fantastic work and finding really interesting bugs uh, and, and providing some great security solutions. But then as a company, I know there's been a lot of things brought to their attention that they they just don't even reply. They don't because either I don't know if it's because they think it's really not a bug, it's a feature or and then eventually someone has to say the way a lot of these hackers work and correct me if I'm wrong is they they go to them privately, they give it their best effort and they finally say, okay, well, if you, if you guys are going to do something about this, I need to let people know. And then they'll just announce it. Yeah. So this is, this is the idea of what we call responsible disclosure. And so what that means is that we don't want 
researchers to go out, find vulnerabilities, and then just release them to the world immediately. Why don't we want that? Well, because then you have a, a period of time where you have lots of devices that are connected to the internet that are that are going to be still vulnerable to whatever that researcher's finding or the problem was that they that they were able to find. So responsible disclosure is the process where I, as a researcher, say I find a problem in a Microsoft product. I contact Microsoft and I give them a good couple of months to work with me so that they can validate the fact that the there is actually a problem and then they can they can actually create a patch for that problem and they can distribute that patch and then when they distribute the patch then I can go ahead and start letting the rest of the world I can publicize and I can get some credit for this cool thing that I found within their software and that way the customers are protected and I can also get some credit as a researcher and there's not like a big giant gaping hole in the internet that's caused by the fact that there's a problem that's not patchable. And these, you know, and it may sound strange, but you got to understand, or at least I want my audience to understand that when these things are announced or when these things are discovered, they can be exploited literally within hours uh, by good hackers that are keeping their ear to the ground. And certainly within a day or two, which is really hard for a lot of big companies like Microsoft, Apple, and Google to turn fixes around in that time. And then, of course, you got to figure that even if they could respond immediately, how long does it take for the average person to say, oh, yeah, I've got an update on my phone. Maybe I should install that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so there are some people that it takes months before they apply an update because they just don't have the the knowledge to understand that when there's an update, like in it, for example, when Apple releases an iOS update, I haven't seen one in years that didn't say that it had some security fixes right. included within it. Right. So I just assume at this point that when I see I, that there's an iOS update for my phone or for my tablet, that I just go ahead and say, let's just go ahead and upgrade it right away because I'm gonna, I'm just gonna assume that there's a security problem that I want to get taken care of. Yep. And with that, let's let's dive into some of the things that we found this year at these conferences. Um, so one of the most interesting ones that came out of this was the robot safe cracker. Tell me, tell, tell me what that one's about. Yeah. So this is a this is a neat story that uh, that I was able to to read a little bit about here. This guy named Nathan Seidel, uh, his wife bought him a present off from Craigslist, which is how his research story here kind of started. It was a safe, okay, and yeah. it was a it was the same type of safe that they actually owned in their house. And what caught her attention was the owner of the safe said, "Hey, this is locked. I can't open it." So, so they sold it really cheap, and then so Nathan's wife kind of brought this safe to him and said, here's a gift for you. I challenge you to see if you can open it. <laughs> and so he started getting into this, you know, kind of how do you, how do you physically attack a, a something like a safe? And it turns out he's one of these – his company actually is one of these kind of do-it-yourself – um, hackable kind of like, uh, let's get together and, and take a bunch of parts and build stuff type of places. And so what he decided to do, he said, I'm going to build a robot that can try to crack this safe. And so think, think for a second about how a safe works. Okay. The type of safe he's working from here, it had three dials across the front. Each of those dials had like zero to 99 as the possible combinations on it. Wow. So if, if you think about that, I'm not a huge mathematician, but <laughs> if you take 100 times all, the possible combinations, I think I did this in pre-algebra class about 100 years ago, yeah. 100 times 100 times 100, there's a million possible combinations that those three dials could go into. And so it should so, – so what he did is he built this robot that was able to connect to the rotors and spin them and, and uh, monitor where the – particular rotors where the dials were and what the numbers were so that it could go ahead and try to crack the or find the actual 
code to unlock that safe. And so his initial, so this, and he did this, this, this thing he built $200 in parts. Oh, wow. Okay. So this isn't like he had the United States government or Department <laughs> of Defense behind him with an aircraft carrier budget of a trillion dollars or right. something. He did this with $200 worth of parts. And so um, what he did, at, so, so when he hit the first, I guess the first way he built it out the, with, with just kind of trying the three dials and things, it would take about four months to run through every possible combination. Okay. And he said to himself, in the true kind of hacker approach to the world, he said, ah, it doesn't work. That's too long. I need to see if I can find ways to to make this easier or quicker to crack. And so one of the first thing he found with this particular safe that he was working with, if the combination, if the actual dial, the number that, it, that the combination was, was like, say, 12, if he put it to 11 or 13, it was close enough and the mm. safe would still open. So now all of a sudden he figured out, well, wait a minute, I only have to try every third number in, right. on the dial. And I can so I, he cut down his his total number of, I guess, attempts that he had to make. Um, another thing he figured out was the three rotors, the three dials are actually separate from each other. So he so the, the machine, the robot could set two of them to a set value and then it could run through every possible option on the third dial without without respinning all of them. So because those things were separate, he figured out he could it was less movement. He could just focus in on one hmm. and he could go through it faster. Uh, and then the other thing he, the, the really this is a really crazy thing that he figured out. So this device had a particular anti cracking for a, anti safe cracking kind of physical protection where I guess if somebody's really good at cracking a safe, they can. Uh, they can start to adjust the dials and they can push down on the handle to put some pressure on it. Mm -hmm. And apparently there's a little noise if you have like super good ears or if that's why you always see the safe crackers in movies with the, the stethoscope and right. they're, they're listening. Because if you if you put down some weight on the handle, it'll make a, a, a noise that you can tell that it's the right spot. You're in the right dial. So this company created this uh, these special rods that would uh, prevent that – that would basically prevent it from – from being able to kind of give off that noise. But it turns out that they could build a pressure sensor into this robot. So the pressure sensor without, it, it could actually detect when it had the right one of this anti-safe cracking. So there was a flaw in the, <laughs> in the protection that they built that allowed him, that allowed the robot to detect when the, when based on just very slight pressure adjustments when it had the correct one. And so he ended up with Getting that four-month time down, the maximum time it takes this little robot to crack this safe, one hour and 13 minutes. Oh, wow. Maximum. <laughs> well, and that, that so totally explains the hacker uh, mentality and the way things – and the way a lot of hackers actually work you know, on computers as well. Is they find those little flaws. They find those little things that give them the leg up. They find you know, where mathematically you say, oh, well, there's a million possible combinations. But if you've cracked that down to – I really only need to do a third of those. It's 33 to the third power, not 100 to the third power, which – that may not seem like a big difference, but it's huge. And if you get a, a you chain enough of those together, then you like you know you can get that down from forty hours to apparently an hour and whatever hour and forty minutes. An hour and thirteen minutes was the maximum. Wow! Right. Oh, so normally wow. you're going to be like at a, an average. You're going to be somewhere in the middle. You're right, going to be right, about right. forty five minutes or so is going to be your average time or forty minutes where it's going to for that to actually uh, open. So um, so that that's a huge thing. And like you said, I'm gonna I'm gonna restate something you said there because I think this is so important. This does capture what we say when we say the hacker mindset and so what i mean by that is part of the hacker mindset is saying okay here's all the rules for how things are supposed to work 
and now I'm going to throw all those rules out of the window <laughs> and I'm not going to abide by them. And, um, and and that's what he did here. He started to find little flaws in the safe's design, for example, the every third number that allowed him to make his solution better and better because if he would have just played by the rules, he would say, well, I can only try one number at a time. But he found a way around that. We're a new breed of talk radio with a new breed of host and shows to entertain and inform you. It's America Out Loud Talk Radio. Shows that impact your health, honor our heroes, political talk. Shows that inspire you to live a truly authentic life. You can hear your favorite shows on networks like iHeartRadio or AHA Radio. Or just download our free apps on both Android and Apple. But we are proud to have you as one of our growing family of listeners. We are the vision of the voices, AmericaOutloud.com. Now, without a doubt, my friends, this is a game changer. It was for me, and it can be for you. I want to give you an exclusive offer today for our friends of America Out Loud. We appreciate you, and we want to show it right now with our complimentary gift. You can try this today free with our Healthy Cell Pro 7-Day Sample. Now, when I say free, I mean it is 100% free. Free shipping, no risk, no obligation, no credit card required. It's a complimentary gift from us to you. Now, Healthy Cell, it's, I'll tell you what, 90-plus nutrients are infused into every cell of your body. This product has been incredible for me personally, and I think it can be for you as well. So I want you to try it. It'll boost your energy, you'll sleep better at night, sharpens your focus, you'll feel healthier, and hopefully we'll all live longer in a beautiful, prosperous life I always talk about with you on the show. Well, I'll tell you what, you can go to the front page of AmericaOutloud.com and just click the large banner ad, and we'll have that complimentary gift right off to you. I think it's important, since we're, we're talking about ha- uh, Black Hat, and DEFCON and hacker culture, it's important for people to remember that the word hacker is not a negative term. Right. And, and a lot of people still use the word hacker a lot of times in the news and, and reporters and things, and, and they're getting a lot better than they used to. Um, but this idea of the hacker as the uh, guy wearing the black hoodie where the, his face is oh, yeah. shadowed out because you can't see, it's just, it's so wrong. <laughs> Hacking is a mindset. It's not, it, it, now I, I, so I, I use the word attacker in my vocabulary when I'm talking about someone who is trying to uh, find security vulnerabilities for financial gain or, or break things for disruptive purposes. Mm-hmm. So I try not to use hacker in the same from a negative perspective, I try to use it from a neutral perspective as somebody who's just trying to understand how things work and likes to pull things apart. Absolutely. Yeah. In my day, that was an engineering thing. When I was a kid, you know, I, I first, you know, kind of figured out that I wanted to be an engineer because I would take all my stuff apart. I would never use it the way it was intended to be used. I wanted to find some other way to use it. So I'd pull them all apart and I'd put <laughs> it back together in some other way. And that, that's, you know, that's the same kind of curiosity and the same kind of um, intent, I think, that a lot of the hackers get. That, that, that's such a great point. And, you know, maybe in the future we'll, we'll, we'll bring you back. We'll talk about uh, the hacker mindset. And, you know, maybe if some, some of our listeners out there, maybe some of their kids might be interested, that might be a good topic. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the kind of jokingly ways I like to think about this is, you know, when you think about the instructions that come with something that you're going to put together, 
the person that has that hacker mindset that, that, that to them that's just the manufacturer's suggested way <laughs> assembling that given product together. It's not it's not a binding contract. I that's didn't right. sign. Um, so to finish this one out, I, I want to talk about what how the vendor responded to this because unfortunately, as with a lot of these types of findings. The vendor came back and they said – this was their response exactly. They said, the average person could not replicate this attack in the field. That was their <laughs> response, which is so – I mean this is $200 in parts and this guy a couple of – and some nights and weekends in a project that he thought was really fun. Yeah. So I, I very much beg to differ with the average person could not replicate this attack in the field. I think that's the wrong response. And I think companies have to, have to embrace – these types of findings and demonstrate the fact that, you know what, you got us. Okay. Yep. So now I'm going to do something to fix it. Well, or I'm going to say people have to accept the risk. I mean, maybe that's the other thing. Well, and the other thing that, that, that I think that this thing just broad brushes over is that, yeah, okay, so and, and this is true of hacking as well. Yeah, it took one guy some ingenuity and some time to get this done. Once it's done once, and it's put out, anybody could do it. And those are the people we call the script kiddies, right? Or, or yep. the other thing, too, it, when, when you find these hacks, yeah, it may have taken someone very clever and or a lot of time and a lot of trial and effort to find something. Once it's found, it's trivial. You, is, you release it to the Internet. In fact, there are even you can download this today. Metasploit is a big one, right? You, you can, this is kind of like the, the Borg of <laughs> the, this mass collection of all these known zero-day attacks or whatever, the, 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 this toolkit that anybody right now could go to the Internet and download. As soon as somebody figures out these things, they just throw them in there, and it's this, it's this toolbox. And once the, once the sure, once you know, maybe the, the initially it took somebody really smart to figure it out, but after that, anybody could do it. Yeah, Metasploit has definitely opened the world of attacking into – it used to be script kitties had to get – there would be individual scripts for an attack. There wasn't a framework that went with it. So Metasploit is a powerful tool, but it's also a powerful weapon as well if used in, if in the wrong hands. As all these things tend to be. <laughs> so not the truth about everything, right? Yeah, you absolutely. You can't really find anything. The pen I'm holding in my hand is a uh, – both a writing instrument and a dangerous weapon, depending on the intent. That's right. All right. So let's. What, what else did we find out from uh, Defcon, uh, Defcon and Black Hat this year? So let's get a little bit more serious now. Let's talk about these radioactivity sensors. Mm -hmm. uh, some research that happened there. So I think of the robot Safecracker. It's kind of a lighthearted human interest type of story. So right. It's not really that big of a of a threat to the average person who's listening here. Maybe if you have a safe and you might want to <laughs> make sure your kids aren't potentially building robots in the room, but that's a whole other thing. But, um, let's talk about this radioactive sensor, uh, story that came out of this as well. So, uh, security researcher, this guy's name is Ruben Santa Marta. Hmm. And what he did was he started doing some research into these radioactivity sensors that are used at, at nuclear power facilities. So yeah. that was part of his research. And the other part was looking at the devices that are basically gate monitoring systems at nuclear power plants. And what these th what both of these things are doing is they're looking for uh, bad levels of radiation. Okay. So some of the devices he was testing, a nuclear power plant's going to wear on their belt. Uh, plant, not the plant. The people working <laughs> at the plant are going to wear on their belt. So when they're walking around the plant, if that thing starts to beep and go off, they know they're, they're, there's a problem and they're, they're in a bit of trouble here. Okay. And then the other thing with the gate monitoring systems, this is about 
checking vehicles and things. That's that's more of a theft prevention. Like if somebody tries driving through plutonium in the trunk of their car, the gate monitoring system is supposed to go berserk and and let everybody know with machine guns to come swarming in and, and uh, try and take care of it. So and they use these some a lot of these are used at ports as well. They, they use these at uh, at various ports around the United States to look for uh, some sort of radioactive materials coming in. Definitely. Yeah. So there's, it's much, this, this is much bigger than just the nuclear power facilities. This is the, this is the technology that our nation uses to detect potential nuclear threats anywhere across the, you know, like you said, the ports, airports, uh, nuclear power plants, they're, they're used all over the place. All right. So what do you find? So what he found was that, there are a number of vulnerabilities that exist in these types of devices. And so um, he found that for, first of all, he was able to buy some of these first sets. So these, these radioactivity sensors that people just carry around with them, he could buy, he bought some from eBay for like 200 bucks a piece. (laughs) And so he's now he's got them in his hands. And what he found is that he could actually, he could actually use the ones that he bought and he could he could cause them to send false data backwards to the monitoring device that collects the data from these various belt worn kind of uh, sensors. Okay. So so basically he could send false information back in. Well, what could you do with that? Well, you could make the readings look strange. You could make things appear that um, you could make the you could make it look like there was a huge meltdown happening at the moment mm. based on that sensor's reading and. Um, he pointed to to the uh, 1979, the Three Mile Island uh, nuclear meltdown, right? Um, because there there were there were there was a problem with the detection equipment, basically that happened there, and they were getting bad readings and things, and they didn't react fast enough in that disaster to be able to deal with it. And so what he's saying here is that the devices, the problems that these things have, he could, he could use those same devices to create the same type of false of bad information that happened while the three mile Island sensors were failing Mm. to cause the monitoring people to, you know, not really know what was going on. That's a, actually, that's a classic hack uh, for security system is, is find, find a sensor and make that sensor go off all the time when it's not supposed to. And ev- invariably, the people will turn it off <laughs> rather than, oh, this thing, this thing's flaking out. It's not giving me any good information anyway. Let's just turn this off. And now all of a sudden, they've defeated that system. Yeah. And uh, so it gets a little bit better, though, <laughs> with, the, <laughs> with the radioactive sensor firm. Um, Myriad's the name of the company here for these devices that he was looking at. And so what he found was he was able to actually get access to their, their firmware, the, 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 the actual software code that runs on these radios. And so he was able to do – he was even able to do some other impersonations and things from that. But the real catch is he figured out and the company confirmed that he could actually spoof these messages – from up to 30 miles away. Oh my God. From the location. So <laughs> when, and a lot of times what people will say in this type of a world is they'll say, oh, well, you know what? We have guards with machine guns. So if we see somebody trying to spoof w- with a radio, trying to uh, send thing, they're standing at the fence and they're pointing a radio in there. Our guards are just going to shoot them at the gate, which is likely true. But in this case, now you've got somebody 30 miles away that could spoof me. Just all he's got to do is be ten miles away. Nobody's wow. going to have any idea what he's doing. So right? these were wireless things. They they, they were controlled. Yeah. Or, oh, jeez. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's Mirion. That's the first company that did these kind of belt worn things. But he wasn't done. I told you about the security gate things. Um, so what he did with the security gates? Now he wasn't able to buy a security gate because they're hundreds, if not millions, of dollars that, that right, to actually right. buy one of these things. But he, uh, he was able to download the firmware that goes with the device, and he was able to pull that firmware apart, and he found it had a back door. Oh God! In the actual firm door, firmware, and a, what that means is a backdoor is a hard-coded password that the original software developers put into a product in case they ever needed to come back and troubleshoot the device. Instead of needing to ask the legitimate owner of the device for their actual password, the backdoor is something where you can that, that the developer designed as a developer can come right back in. The challenge there is that attackers like to use backdoors as well. Yes. And they know about one, they'll actually use it. Right. You, the, there's no door that works for, for only for good guys and not for bad guys. If you, which is the classic problem we have with you know the, the, with the government's trying to say, oh, we're going to put a back door in that only we will have access to. It doesn't work that way, right? If if one person can get in, anybody can get in. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so what what he figured out that you could do from this access with this backdoor password. Um, you could spoof data from the gate, meaning you could send it messages to make it look like it was different people were coming in and out or, um, or it was going up and down at different times. Um, and you could actually block the real data about the operation of the gate from getting to the actual people. And then the other, the other use case he found for this is that you could, he, he could mess with the actual detection. He could, he could, squelch or keep the alarms from firing if an actual radioactive thing was detected coming through the gate okay he could he could hold it down so that it wouldn't actually be released and so somebody could technically smuggle some type of radioactive material right through this gate and if they had already hacked the gates they would the, the gate just it wouldn't fire the alarm to say hey there's something bad in the back of that car so that sounds really bad. Was there, was there any sort of a response from the company? Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the, the, the gate company Ludlam, here's what they said. And I'm going to read it to you because it's just classic corporate twisting, I guess, of the, of the mm. kind of responsibility here. Ludlam has installed a large number of these particular systems. And to our knowledge, we have never had a client come back to us with this concern. Uh, okay. Um, so that's not an answer. No, right? that's a that's a deflection, and that's wow. and that's not that's not a good approach to security. Um, the the folks at Mirion, the radio people, um, they acknowledge the vulnerabilities that exist there because their radios don't don't scramble the data when it's sent, and they don't confirm that it's actually carry on the other side of the of the device if we're having this radio conversation. But then they kind of pushed it back on that customers and said, well, it's really the customer's decision to implement those protections themselves. Oh, man. Well, hopefully the government heard this, and maybe they'll at least hold their feet to the fire. On... I hope so, because this is, this, is, this is dangerous stuff, and this is, it's not even like it's – and I'm not, you know, I'm, I should I should step back and say, I'm not here to blame anybody about this stuff. Mm -hmm. But once you're aware of something, you have a responsibility to fix it. And yep. so I'm not I'm not shaming these people by saying, hey, their security was bad and right. they should have known better. No, okay, they were made aware of it. Now your response is determined by how you respond from the time you're made aware to it. And I just I'm not I'm not digging the kind of the the attitudes that they're taking about these particular products. 
Yeah, and that's absolutely right. And I've said that multiple times in the show. It, the software's hard, and it's it, the more complicated something is, that it, it's nigh impossible to make something 100% secure. So you have defense in depth, and you've got you, you try to make it as hard as possible, knowing that you're going to mess up somewhere. So you try not yep. to have everything have one linchpin thing that's going to let everything go. So, but you know, there are going to be errors. If there weren't, then we would never have software patches. Yep. Um, but yeah, so you're exactly right in that what you really need to see, what really comes down to is how these companies respond, what somebody does find the bug and you hope that they were, they respond, respond, respond responsibly, yep. um, and get it fixed right away. Own up to it. Uh, yada, yada. Yep. Okay. So we talked about robots cracking safes, sensor, radioactive sensors failing, we got a couple of car conversations to have here. Okay. Do you want to talk about Tesla first, or do you want to talk about why you should be deathly afraid of your car wash in the neighborhood? <laughs> well, let's talk Tesla, and then let's get to the car wash. All right. So uh, most people probably know Tesla, probably one of the coolest cars on the planet these days, because Tesla, when they created these automobiles, they started from scratch, and they embedded technology heavily throughout all of their cars. And so they've got some really cool features. Automatic parking is becoming pretty standard, but they've got automatic parking. They have an autopilot feature. Okay. <laughs> this is, I mean, we are so close to the, the futuristic movies that we saw 10, 15, 20, some of us 25 years ago. Yeah. These crazy futuristic movies where the cars drove themselves. We are not that far away yeah. from that. The challenge is when you have software you have vulnerability. It's yep. just that the two go together. As long as you have, I like to say this, as long as you have human beings that are creating software, there will be vulnerabilities. And that's, it's not a, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just, it's just, it's just a reality. Yep. Humans are going to make mistakes when they write code. So uh, what, what's happened here with Tesla this year? And they had some, they had some interesting findings last year at the Black Hat DEF CON events as well. But this year, a Chinese security firm from Tencent, it's a big company in China, right. they, this yep. is their Keen Security Lab. Um, they found a couple of different vulnerabilities in Tesla Model X cars. And the thing about these, they, 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 these attacks will allow, or would allow them before they were patched, they would allow an attacker to control the vehicle from a remote location. Wow. And so this includes things like changing the settings on the lights, the in-vehicle displays, opening the doors in the trunk. Uh, while, in, while in motion, they were able to force the car to brake, potentially putting – obviously, yeah. that's going to potentially put you in a lot of risk if all of a sudden you're driving down, down, the, down the highway at 65 miles an hour and your brakes go to a complete lock. Yeah. I mean, wow. if you're in heavy traffic, you might get hit from behind. There's a lot of different bad things that can happen there. So um, – this is kind of a continuation. So car hacking became pretty popular a few years ago. Uh, Charlie Miller, Chris Valachek were the kind of the pioneers in the industry. Uh, you might have seen some of the stuff they found on in the Jeep hacks. Yep, that yep. They were actually going after Chrysler and Jeep. Not going after, they were researching. Right. Um, and all of their findings came out at, at Black Hats years ago. Uh, so this is kind of a continuation of that. But one of the um, – I guess one of the things that I think is is very cool about this is – Tesla is very much on board with working with these researchers and going through that responsible disclosure. Tesla actually issued a firmware update in June for all of these issues that these guys then presented at uh, Black Hat in July. 
right in the last you know last month so tesla's working very closely with these folks and they are they have the ability to upgrade software over the air so you don't even have to bring your car into a dealership or anything to get that new version of software but the catch for the for i guess for everybody that's listening here is that and what you have to remember about cars is that the average car these days has four computers inside of it that's just the average i don't even know how many tesla's probably have right. more but cars are internet connected devices with wheels now <laughs> right yeah and so i don't know i don't I, I should really go out and buy like a 1978 chevy <laughs> blazer or something and just drive that around cuz that had zero computers it had some electronics in it but um but yeah, so this so so a lot of attention is being placed on what what folks are calling car hacking, where you're trying to find these people are trying to look for these vulnerabilities in the car software systems themselves, and the car makers are putting a lot of effort into building better software that is responsible for their cars. So I think it's it's all it's a good it's all good, but here's just an example of where things could have gone bad. Yeah, and it's, an it's a good example of the responsible disclosure that, that we talked about earlier where they actually went through the process, they got it fixed before they, they, they disclosed and got the updates pushed out. Um, yeah, because this is, this is life and death now. Right? Yeah. So there, there's a, there is a transfer here. And let me, let me give a little example for your listeners because I think this will put this whole idea of car hacking in a little bit of perspective. If I have an account on a website and I put my username and I have a username and password and I put my credit card into that website. If some, if an attacker breaks into that website and steals my credit card, what happens to me? Not a whole almost, lot. Yeah. Almost zero, like almost no negative impact. My card, my bank will probably detect the problem before I ever figure it out. And they will have a new card in the mail to me and a phone call to me to say, hey, we just turned that old card off because there's a problem. Right. If an attacker breaks into somebody's car driving down the road, this is a life and death situation now. The credit card is just maybe a little bit of inconvenience of my time. Right. Whereas a an attack against my automobile is potentially a loss of my life. So that's the that's that's what the stakes are here. It's so much bigger than credit cards. And that is, and that's where we're heading. The Internet of Things. Everything is getting connected to the Internet. All the things that we thought were just perfectly fine, sitting there by themselves, being dumb, are now being turned into smart devices. And what that really means is that they got they put almost everything's got a computer in it anyway today. But they're they're making that computer accessible via the network in some ways, and usually it's wireless. And so when you start, as soon as you do that, you're immediately opening up for hacking. Um, and the other the other, I want to throw out another couple things for people to think about. Cars one. Uh, pacemaker, insulin pump, uh, a lot of these things that, you know, that medical devices are now becoming wired or uh, becoming smart as well, beginning on the Internet. And so, again, if they're not thinking about security, these are you get into, you, you attack these devices and it's someone's life in, in their hands. You're listening to the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. It's where we say, let the silent voices be heard. We invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com to get all the latest, make it a daily stop, and also get the app. You go right to the App Store and download our free app, and that will put all our content right into your hands on your phones and your tablets. It doesn't get any easier than that. So a guy named Billy Rios, 
Billy Rios has been very famous in the world of, uh, in the circles around Black Hat and DEF CON. He's done a lot of research, found a lot of different problems. He found problems like in the in insulin pumps and pacemakers and things like that. He, he did some research on that a number of years ago. He worked with another guy, Jonathan Butts from QED Secure Solutions. They found vulnerabilities in internet-connected drive-through car washes. <laughs> Sure. How crazy is that? Apparently, there's these internet-connected car washes. That the catch about these is they have no people working in them. Oh okay? wow! So this is this is a car wash. It's a fully automated car wash that is uh, basically you could say it's. I mean, there's robots washing your car. It's not quite as it's not like there's a robot that's walking like C-3PO from right. Star Wars and coming up and and you know washing the the window for you or something, but. The entire system is in an automated state where it's you're interacting with software. And so uh, what they figured out is that there were vulnerabilities that existed in this uh, PDQ laser wash system to the to the point where um, they could actually uh, access the, the pass. The default password on these systems was actually very easy to guess. And Gary, you and I have talked about that in the past yes. about the importance of passwords there were default passwords on these that were very easy to guess. And as soon as you buy, and then they also figured out that you could bypass the password mechanism <laughs> completely. Um, but what they, th what they figured out was after they got through that, they could actually take control of the entire car wash and they could open and close the doors on the car wash. So, so once your car came in, they could trap you inside, oh, inside the chamber. And then they could strike the doors with the arms <laughs> on the robot, they could adjust the, the 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 movement of the arms so as to smash and potentially oh injure the people that are inside the car. Oh, jeez! And if this doesn't, uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. You're, I don't know if you're, uh, I don't know how how old the average person is in your in your audience. But there was a movie called Maximum Maximum Overdrive. It was a Stephen King movie oh. from like in the eighties. Yeah, and I just remember it because this was the whole premise of the movie. The machines were waking up and they were coming after and trying to kill all the people. <laughs> and wow. this is this is like it's like the world of science fiction is crossing over into real life here. Yeah, and the threat is re like who would have thought that you would be going through the car wash yeah. and that that would be a threat to my overall personal safety. Well, and you know what you got to One thing we've got to do as a, as a, as a nation would be just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. And we obviously that's been the background for many movies, right? Jurassic park, you know, where, where they figured out these really cool scientific things and they inevitably go wrong. It's not, you know, there's a lot of great things that we're all going to be reaping benefits from as things get smarter, but we've really got to be careful where we do it and how we do it. Yeah, and this is this is a you, you raise a, a good point there about the fact that this is kind of the wave of the future. So we we keep hearing about all these I don't know government folks and and tech industry pundits are talking about well the robots are going to take over over everybody's jobs, but in this case the robots are taking over the car wash but that opens us up to a whole other level of vulnerability that we wouldn't have and i have a car wash here in the town where i live that it's all people it's run by people i'm <laughs> almost 100% sure that they're not going to slam the arm of the of the car wash into my car or shut the doors and lock me in there um it's certainly possible but they would have to make that decision there in the car wash somebody couldn't be on the other side of the globe 
connecting over the internet and controlling my car wash experience there and trying to hurt me. Wow. All right, so let, let's let's cover one more story out of there. And the one I'd love to talk about is the voting machine hacking. Uh, yeah, this is something so, we covered with um, uh, verified voting not that long ago, and so this is uh, near and dear to my heart. What, what did we learn about that? So one of the things that they did at DEF CON this year, and let me expand a little bit on what's happening at DEF CON now because it's kind of exploded into a lot of different things that are happening kind of in parallel across the conference. Uh, there are the main tracks where you can go to listen to people actually deliver talks about these vulnerabilities. But then there's also all these different villages that are existing a as a part of the conference. There's a social engineering village where they ha where they teach people how to trick humans. Well, so that, then they were also one of the ones that they did this year that was brand new was they did a voting uh, machine hacking village. And so what that means is they, they got – 30 computer-powered ballot boxes that have been used in elections over the last number of years. Um, and they put them into this room, and they just basically – it was a big, giant room, and they let folks just come in and start tearing them apart and searching for vulnerabilities in them. Mm -hmm. And in less than 90 minutes, they were able – they had the first cracks in the systems already. Um, they, they were already demonstrating that there was a problem with the security that was going into these things. Um, so these are machines like Diebold, Sequoia, WinVote. These are things that most of us, we may be seeing newer versions of them, but when we go to vote, we're actually experiencing these same devices. And turns out the devices that they were looking at, they were a mess. They had unpatched versions of software. They're running Windows XP, which, as we all know, Microsoft turned off support for that. Years ago, uh, yeah. Years ago, and it's not even, you're not even supposed to use it. Um, so they also figured out that there were uh, wireless problems, too. They found a lot of these devices that had wireless challenges, meaning they had bad Wi-Fi settings. Some of them were set up with, like, default Wi-Fi uh, passwords oh, so God. that if you had an access point you could get the device to connect to you and then you could begin then and you could attack it right through its own wi-fi channel because it would come to you all right so there's there's lots of stuff there that we had let me a couple things i want to make sure we go back to first of all they to to get these machines if i if i read the articles on this correctly none of these companies provided the machines you, you can't buy them for test you can't you can't rent them for test the, my understanding, they, they got a lot of these things off of eBay, like the like the, the voting systems of these counties that you know maybe they were upgrading something else or they were getting rid of the old ones. Um, they these they had to go and and claw to get these things. There was there's no other way to get them besides getting them like basically second hand. Yep. Yeah. So it's it's definitely there's definitely a market for buying these things and and uh, you know we've had so much controversy in the country. This year and then going all the way back to the to the year 2000 with the the, the election challenges in Florida with yep. the vote counting and things and all the allegations this year in the election or in, in last year's election about potential tampering from outside sources and things. Who knows, like if, if these things are readily available on eBay, then a lot of these devices probably exist outside the United States in test labs for various foreign governments. 
Right. And it's so important. And, and I don't understand how some of these companies, so when we talked about, you know, good companies and bad companies and how they deal with software vulnerabilities, they're going to be there. They're absolutely going to be there no matter what you claim. So this is, this is the flip side of that coin. These are the, these are the companies that are saying, oh no, you can't see our stuff, but trust us. It's all good. It's military grade. That, 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 they love to throw that word out. Military grade encryption. This, this stuff is unhackable. How do you know it's unhackable unless you've actually had some hackers take a look at it, which we thankfully, you know, at, at this conference, we had some folks do and showed readily that they are not unhackable. Yeah, that's that is definitely the conclusion <laughs> that comes out of the the fight. I mean, they, they had the first the first uh, finding in 90 minutes time. And these guys and, and the, you know, I, sh- I say guys, but guys and, and men and women both that were that were working on these projects. I mean, they, they were able to tear these devices apart. Once again, we're back to that hacker mindset. Right. Let's pull it apart and see how it works. And so we can understand both logically and physically pull it apart and see kind of what makes it uh, what makes it actually work. So, yeah, this is a it's exciting that DEF CON actually hosted this. And now our hope becomes, can the vendors like Diebold and Sequoia and WinVote, can they, w- will they take the feedback that comes out of this process and then use that to actually improve their voting solutions? Because if we're going to go to electronic voting for everything, then we really have to be 100% sure that they're actually that they're one vote per person and that there's no tampering possible inside of the system absolutely and as barbara simons was telling us uh, when we talked about this a couple of weeks ago um the 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 safety you have on this, the the backup you have is that there absolutely has to be for no matter what the system is, no matter what technology you use, there has to be a paper trail. So the way I have to be able to walk in as a voter, make my vote on whatever the machine is. It could be touchscreen. It could be levers. I don't care what it is, but it should be able to print out something that says, here's who you here's who you voted for. I should be able to see on that ballot who what, what my choices were, and then I turn that in. Now, you can scan that and do all that electronically and tabulate the votes. That's great. But at the end of the day, if there's any any inkling whatsoever that those devices were not working properly or that they were hacked, you've got to be able to go back to the paper trail and, and, and if necessary, hand count to verify that the, that the votes were exactly what were tabulated. Yeah, and uh, that, that certainly seems like it would provide some additional assurance. I guess you're saying that the papers could then be tal- – then you could check the paper to make sure it was correct, and then they could choose to then completely throw out the electronic and just go exactly. back to the paper. Okay, yeah, I'm with you now. Okay, yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a fail-safe, and that's the, a good separation between the cyber world and the physical world, definitely. Well, thank you very much for wrapping that up. That was that was a really good readout. And I, what I want our listeners to take away is that is that these hacker conferences are happening. Those, these are the big ones, but there are, there are other ones at, at at smaller levels. There are, and then there's just folks sitting around the garage trying to trying to hack stuff and get and and if they're doing things right, if they're ethical hackers, and there actually is a certified ethical hacker uh, program you could get it into, which maybe we'll we'll discuss at another point. But um, these guys are out there fighting the good fight, and, and, and you're right. Do not be they're not hackers are not necessarily attackers. Uh, really what they are, they're curious folks that are out there trying to find holes and stuff and responsibly notifying the people that own those uh, vulnerabilities to get them fixed so that they that they can work better. Yeah, let me let me uh, offer something to your listeners as far as you might you might think, well, you know, this whole security conference thing in Las Vegas sounds really interesting. Like there's a lot of cool things happening, but I don't have two thousand, yeah. three thousand dollars to go to Las Vegas. There's a, a series of conferences called B-Sides okay. and B-Sides actually the, the, the first B-Sides was actually in Las Vegas 
and um, it went. Well, it might have been in San Francisco with RSA, but it, it was it was early on. And the idea was let's have a. If you think about the old records, we're going back a long way into to our understanding here. But when you actually bought a record, and I guess for your audience, for those that don't know, a record is a <laughs> black disc that used to contain LP, music. Yes, there would be. There would be two sides to that. There would be – like if you bought a single, a single song, there would be – the song that you wanted would be on the A side and then the B side would be something that you probably didn't right. think was that good or, or whatever. But So they kind of borrowed that idea of the naming to say – there's an A side and a B side, and these are like B side kind of security talks. And but they've grown into a, a whole world of their own. And a lot of wh- where there's a lot of big security conferences, there tends to be a B sides that happens around the same time to give other people more of a voice. But the cool thing is that it's grown to all across the United States. So I live here in the in the Raleigh, North Carolina area, and we have B sides Raleigh once okay. a year, and it's like a DefCon style. It's supposed to be in the vein of, of Black Hat and DEF CON, but it's here in the local my local city. And so if the listeners want to get more and want to look for a, an opportunity where they could participate in, and go kind of experience one of these things, look on look, search on Google and look and see if you have a B-Sides anywhere near your where, where your home and go check that out. That's a place you can get Fantastic. Well, wonderful. That was really a uh, really interesting talk. And uh, I think we need to come back some point in the future and we'll talk about uh, for those folks that might be interested again, or maybe their kids are interested or whatever about being in a hacker or getting into that mentality, what they might do. And until then, thank you very much. It was wonderful talking to you again. And thanks for coming back. Thanks, Kerry. All right. And that's going to do it for this week. We got a, just a real quick tip for you. And that tip is to go check out the book called Hackers, Heroes of the Computer Revolution. It was written by a guy named Stephen Levy, written uh, over 30 years ago now, but it's been recently updated in the 25th anniversary edition. Go pick that up. If you enjoyed any of this discussion we had about hackers, this kind of goes through the history of hacking and the hacking ethic and gets into the mind of the old time hackers. It's very, very interesting. I highly recommend you give that a, a look if you've enjoyed any of this discussion we had today. And in the future, Chris Romeo and I are going to get into even more in depth and what it's like to be a hacker and how you might become one. So stay tuned for that episode coming in the future. And that's going to do it for this week, folks. So as usual, don't get caught with your drawbridge down and I will see you again next week. Thank you.